You're listening to The Doers Podcast, right here on The Doers Network. And now, here's your host, Donald Robinson II. Hello once again, and welcome to The Doers Network. I'm Donald Robinson II, your host. And for this episode, we're going to listen to a fireside chat with Mr. Sunil Gupta, moderated by Mr. Cyrus Mystery. Sunil Gupta is the co-founder of RISE, a mobile health company that partnered with Michelle Obama to help lower the cost of quality health care for thousands of medical patients. Sunil is currently writing an upcoming book titled Backable, which was written to help people to understand how to get people to believe in their ideas. It's based on his experience and research he was sharing with students while on faculty at Harvard Medical School. In this chat, Sunil shares some of his experiences growing up in Metro Detroit, and he talks about the future in terms of being an investor in Metro Detroit businesses. Cyrus Mystery is Group Product Manager at Google, and he also is able to share his experiences growing up in Metro Detroit and some of his outlook on Detroit's future. So listen closely as they share with you their ideas and also Sunil's experience right here on the Doers Network. And now, take a listen to our fireside chat with Sunil Gupta and Cyrus Mystery. Hi, everybody. You're at uh, Bamboo's Doers Chat Series, where every quarter we bring in somebody really fun and exciting who can share about either building a company, investing, and just our entrepreneurial life that we have here at Bamboo. Today, we have a very special guest, Sunil Gupta. Uh, Sunil has tons of experience starting, selling, and exiting a company. He's the founder and CEO of Rise, a healthcare company that partnered with Michelle Obama and sold to One Medical. Sunil's ideas have been backed by firms like Greylock and Google Ventures. He served as entrepreneur in residence inside Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield & Byers. He's personally invested in startups such as Impossible Foods. You guys have probably all had an Impossible Burger, right? <laughs> Um, Airbnb, 23andMe, Calm, SpaceX, and more. He's currently on faculty at Harvard, has been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, I could go on. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then he is here today with our moderator, Cyrus Mystery, product uh, manager at Google. Cyrus is currently the group product manager at Google, responsible for commercial platforms and ecosystems worldwide and he leads a team of product and program managers in five countries. Sounds like a very busy job. Um, so I'm gonna hand it over. We usually do a, a quick you know, 20 minute Q&A um, up here discussion, and then we'll open it up to you, the audience. So if you have questions, please think about them along the way, and uh, thank you both for being here. Hey, by the way, there's, there, there are index cards probably right, right where you are. Just hold those off to the side, and we're going to be doing an activity a little later on. Okay, so just keep those off to the side. You got a pen, keep that off to the side as well, and then we'll, we'll get back to that. That will be revealed. Um, can everyone hear me all right? We only have one mic, so we're going to instead of just, you can all, right, I'm pretty loud. Is he loud enough? Can you all hear me in the back? At okay. least that, that's what my wife says. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Um, so I'm super excited. I've been wanting to interview this guy uh, for a long time. I, believe it or not, I have known Sunil for 20 years. Uh, we actually went to the same high school. 
believe it or not. Um, and we actually had some of the same teachers, uh, although Sunil did better. Than yeah, I should know a funny story about that. So literally the first time I ever heard of Cyrus Mystery, their moderator, I was, uh, I was in chemistry class. And this is like second week of chemistry class. And my brother actually went to the same high school as well, but he graduated 10 years before me. And so, and he was, he was a great student. I was not as great a student. And he, literally, the chemistry teacher comes up to me, this is week two, and he, he, his name was Mr. Hansen. And he says, you know, your, your brother was the finest chemistry student I've ever had. He said, and, and, and now, and he gestures towards me, and now, we actually have someone who is just as good. And I said to him, well, I, I don't, you know, it's only week two. And he said, his name is Cyrus Mystery. This is a made-up story. That was completely true. That's the first time I heard of Cyrus Mystery. That is not true at all. About 20 okay. years ago. Okay, so, so, and another thing that Sunil and I share, besides Mr. Hansen, is a very unique, you know, Growing up in Detroit, uh, going to Silicon Valley, among other places, Chicago, etc., then coming back to Detroit, I actually was fortunate enough to read an early manuscript uh, of the book uh, that we'll be talking a bit about, so I'm very excited about that. And actually, in the book, you talk about, you know, a hero's journey. It's actually in many different examples of kind of going off leaving your hometown, getting trained, learning about the world, and then coming back. Um, you know, how do you think about that journey, leaving uh, Detroit, going to Silicon Valley? Um, how do you look at Detroit as similar or different to Silicon Valley for a lot of people that are, that are here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, so I spent about a decade in Silicon Valley, and I always, I always intended to come back home. This is home. Um, the way that it happened was different than I expected it to happen. So what ended up happening was that in October, of, in 2016, uh, I ended up selling my company um, to a company called One Medical, which actually just went public about three weeks ago. And, um, and I was working at One Medical, and um, the presidential election was coming up. And, uh, and I started to get really involved. I was, um, <laughs> I was scared that what, was, what actually ended up happening was going to happen. Um, and um, so I, I started doing a bunch of work, um, and eventually um, I got a phone call um, asking me to serve on Hillary Clinton's uh, presidential transition team, which was the shortest job I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, but I, for those two weeks while I had that job, uh, I literally um, built a team, I had an office all set up in Washington, D.C., and so it was literally election night. Um, and uh, my wife, who's here, Lena, in the back, raise your hand, so I'm going to point to you. Well, so Lena and I are in our apartment in San Francisco, and my bag is packed because I literally am flying out the next morning to Washington D.C. And uh, um, obviously, she was going to win. Everybody, especially in San Francisco, believed that she was going to win. Um, and then uh, what we thought was going to happen happened. So the next morning, um, I'm devastated. I'm unpacking my bags. Um, and, and that's when it really dawned upon me that, like, look, I've been so in a bubble living in Silicon Valley. Um, I'm completely disconnected with what's really happening um, in our country. And I realized it was that day that I, I, I told Lena, like, it's, it's, it's time to go home. And we did. So uh, that's, you know, that's, that's, why, that's why I'm here. That's awesome.
Oh, you asked about Detroit and Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting because people always talk about, um, you know, what is it about Silicon Valley? What are the ingredients that make it work? You know, I, ultimately, I think it, I, I think it comes down to three things. I think uh, it's capital, it's community, and it's courage. Capital, community, courage, and capital and community are things that people here understand very, very well because um, it's talked about often. But courage is something that I, I think is probably not talked about enough. And what I mean by that is, is that um, you know, most of you are, are on some sort of entrepreneurial journey right now. And I think that that takes an enormous amount of courage to do. Um, you know, to, to take a leap, to, to do something that's uncertain, um, it takes guts. We, we, all, we all know that. I think the thing that's different about a place like Silicon Valley is that if you take that leap and you fail, that is kind of worn as sort of a badge of honor. And so, you know, there are plenty of people in Silicon Valley that are second-time founders where their first thing didn't work. And that's sort of seen not just as a, huh, well, go get them next time sort of thing. It's actually seen as very positive. Like, you must have learned a lot, and that is going to actually prepare you for your second thing. Whereas I don't know if we're quite there yet here in Detroit. I think we're going to get there. But I don't think we're quite there yet. I think when I talk to founders here, a lot more afraid of failure because they feel like, look, if I fail on my first one, maybe I'm not going to get funded or maybe I get supported on my second one. And that fear of failure can be can be really harsh. Um, so um, it was interesting because when I was working, I was working for a venture capital firm uh, in Silicon Valley, Kleiner Perkins, and uh, and they did a bunch of research. And it's one of the oldest, most established, uh, you know venture capital firms out there, so they have decades of data, right? And one of the things that they found was they compared second-time founders who had succeeded on their first venture to second-time founders who had failed in their first venture. And what they found was that second-time founders who had failed outperformed second-time founders who succeeded, and not just by a little bit, by a lot. There was, there was the knowledge of the success that they had, or the knowledge of having gone through it, um, but there was also just this, this hunger of it's time to actually go and, and, and get this done. Um, and so again, long answer to, to your question though, but I feel like we need to get to a place where it's not just okay to fail, but it's actually probably a good thing, and we're looking for those people. We actually want to invest in them because we know that they're now ready to go out and get it done. Capital, community. Capital, community, courage. So, so what first got you interested in this topic of being backable? And you may want to even explain just generally what, what do you mean by backable? What, what you know? I think it's a, it's a new term. You're yeah. Um, and then and then leading into you know what made you decide to write this book. Yeah. Yeah. So backable backable is a new word. If you go to the dictionary, you're not going to find it. It is the title of my book. Um, and so we're kind of coining something a little bit new. Um, the way I define backable is capable of inspiring action in a powerfully irresistible way. Capable, capable of inspiring action in a powerfully irresistible way. You have an idea where people are like, huh, I really need to get behind that. Or you're the type of candidate uh, where people are like, we really need to hire that person. Um, you know, you go to these cocktail conversations and people say, hey, what do you do? And you, you answer the question, and, you know, there's, there's a little bit of small talk, but every once in a while you meet someone and you're like, oh my God, like I, 
really interesting. I need to keep in touch with you. I need to know what you're doing. And like, how do you become? How do you become that person? Um, and and I think I really do think that that you know some of it obviously has to do with the quality of the idea, but so much of it has to do with the quality of the explanation. So much of it has to do with the quality of the explanation. And I've always been interested in um, this because you know look, I think that there are certain people who are very who are naturally good at this. And I realized that in an early in an early part of my career, I worked actually I started my career at the Penobscot Building right here in Detroit. And I remember I was working in consulting, and I'd, I'd look around the table, and every once in a while there were these people who were my age, they were like a year out of school, and when they spoke, and when they shared an idea, people listened. Like, they just did. And I was not one of those people. <laughs> but I wanted to be that person. Um, and, so, and so I've always been intellectually curious about this, but also I think, you know, backable is, a, is, is really a very human subject because it's all about people taking bets on other people, right? Even when they're not sure that the bet they're taking is going to work, you're taking a risk on someone, you're taking a chance on someone. And that's such a, that's such a human story. I, I bet that every single one of you in this room has a backable story. There's someone in your life, someone in your career, who has at some point decided to take a chance on you. And I was really, really interested those stories. It's really fun to cover and understand that part of a person's, um, you know, arc, their, their timeline, their story. Um, like the, the, the best story in the book is still the story of a woman named Dementi Hingarani. And Dementi was a refugee who lived right on the border of Pakistan and India. And uh, when she was a teenager, she found a book. And that book was an, a biography of Henry Ford. And she reads this book from cover to cover. It's the first book in the English language that she has ever read. And from that moment, she's completely hooked. And she gets this goal of, I'm going to move to America. And I'm going to go to the Detroit area. And I'm going to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company. That's, that's the vision that she had for herself. And her parents get behind the vision. They save literally every penny they have to get her to the United States, to get her an education. So she graduates is from Oklahoma State University. She gets in a car the next day. She drives to Dearborn, Michigan, she, and she applies for a job. And finally, she gets a, she gets a meeting with the hiring manager. Um, and when the hiring manager walks into the room, he's surprised because he looks at her application and he realizes that she's actually applying for the job of an engineer. And he looks at her and he says, I'm sorry, we, you know, we, we actually don't have any female engineers working here. This was in the 1960s, so Ford Motor Company has thousands of engineers. Not a single one of them is a female at this point. So she like gets ready to gather her belongings and walk out of the room, but instead, she takes a deep breath, she looks at him, and with all the confidence that she can muster, she tells her story. She talks about being a refugee in a refugee camp and the, and the fact that her parents have saved everything just to get her to this moment. And it's in that moment, in that meeting, that this guy decides to take a bet on her. And on August 7th, 1967, she becomes Ford Motor Company's first ever female engineer. And the reason that I, that I, I love that story, and it's my favorite story in the book, is because that woman was my mom. So, 
So you, you alluded to this briefly. So who would you say is the is the audience for this book in the sense that who would gain something from this? It's not just entrepreneurs, but like you said, it could be um, these could be tips that you would use if you're searching for a job or if you're trying to convince someone of anything actually, like any of these things. Uh, I think it's for anybody who's had an idea that's been turned down. And that idea could be, hey, hire me. That idea could be fund my business. That idea could be, hey, I think we I think we should do things differently here at the office. Um, if you're the kind of if you're the person who I think the majority of us are, where every time you have an idea that might seem a little bit out of the ordinary, it might seem a little bit unorthodox. Um, you know, people don't listen up right away or, or pay attention right away. Then then I think there are a lot of things in this book that have helped me, and I think can help other people as well. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about new ideas, I mean, because I think the people here, what makes what makes you really interesting and special is that like you're you're, you're not just you're not just going with the flow necessarily. You're, you're you're trying to come up with new things that can actually improve people's lives and can help us do things in different ways. That's that's what it means, I think, to be entrepreneurs. But the the, the, the catch twenty two for for all of us is that um, sometimes the newer and the fresher your idea, sometimes the harder it is to actually get other people bought in. Right. So as it turns out, the ideas that have sometimes the biggest potential to change the world are sometimes the hardest ideas to get people to believe in. But we have to do it, because if we didn't, then we would never have put a man on the moon, we would never have had the civil rights movement, we never would have had vaccinations for cures like HIV. Like, it, it, it requires us as entrepreneurs not to just come up with ideas and not just to execute on them well, but there's really a hidden step in between. And that hidden step in between is where we get these early people, investors, early employees, early supporters, to say, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a bet on you. I'm gonna believe in you. Um, and that is something that I don't think comes naturally to most of us, but I think can very much be learned. So, one of the things, so my favorite part uh, of the, the, the manuscript, at least, was just, you could tell Sunil's an incredible storyteller, uh, phenomenal stories from some of the most interesting people that you were able to meet with. I just want to give you guys a set. Peter Chernin is a very famous media executive. Reid Hoffman is the founder of LinkedIn. Adam Lowry, the founder of Method. Methods, we had Method Soulballs where our house method. Ellen Levy, the most connected person in Silicon Valley. Michael Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, and on and on. Um, of this, and by the way, this is actually not dissimilar to Sunil's LinkedIn, who he happens to know everybody uh, I could possibly imagine. Probably the most impressive network. Who would you say became the most interesting person of all of these people? Because it's already quite an interesting, diverse set of people. Well, that's 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 actually a really tough one because I, I I really do I really um, we had, we had a chance to talk to some really interesting people. Um, and what's cool is that when you're writing a book, uh, for those of you who want to do that or have done that, um, it's cool because it, it it makes you a student again. And you can go out and you can just tell people, hey, I'm writing a book. I'm really interested in your story. And most people I've found will, will actually talk to you. Um, so that's cool. Uh, most interesting. You know, um, one that just came to mind is a guy named Oren Jacob. And I'll tell you his story. Um, so Oren started off as an intern at Pixar. Um, and this is early, early days Pixar. This is before uh, Pixar came up with Toy Story. So it's a graphics animation company. And the CEO of the company is Steve Jobs. 
And one day, Steve Jobs looks at basically the, the earnings of the company, looks at the, looks at the balance sheet, and says, this company is just not working. And so he comes in, and he cleans house. He fires like 70% of the staff. And this guy, Oren, Jacob, literally everybody around him gets fired. Like his colleagues, his boss, like everybody's gone. But he doesn't get fired. And he's not, and he wonders, is it because like, did they forget? I, I just don't know. Like, I think I'm fired, but I'm not sure. And so this was a Friday. So he literally goes, he goes, he goes, uh, he goes home and he's hanging out with some friends. Um, and he's like, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm fired. Like I, I, I'm fired, I think I'm fired. And, uh, and, and one of the guys is like, why don't you just show up on Monday and just, just see, just see what happens. So Monday morning comes along and he shows up to the staff meeting, the all hands meeting. And now this all hands meeting is literally 30% of the size that it used to be. People are basically sitting around like a large table and everybody's looking around the table to see who made it through the cuts. And people are kind of giving them odd looks because they're like, well, why, why did they keep the intern? It doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> And so, and so he just he keeps his head down, and he and later on that day after the staff meeting, Steve Jobs comes in, does his like you know moderates the meeting, and you know tell, tells people, hey, we're gonna move forward, and he finds something to do that day, and then the next day he does the same thing, and then the next day he does the same thing for 19 years, and he goes from being intern to the chief technology officer of all of Pixar. And the reason that he was really interesting to interview is because like. When I think about backable, when I think about being backable, it's from all walks of life, right? I mean, I've talked to artists, I've talked to, I've talked to uh, executives inside these companies, I've talked to, I've talked to people who work at the Pentagon, uh, producers of Oscar-nominated films. Oren was kind of sitting in the middle of all of that because he had artists who were pitching ideas, he had producers who were pitching ideas, he had storytellers who were pitching ideas, animators who were pitching ideas, and be, uh, being at Pixar, he kind of sat in the middle of all of it. So when I had a chance to sit down with him and hear his stories, a lot of the stories, by the way, made it into the book. I just, I mean, it was completely, I mean, it was, it was, I was, I was blown away. One thing I'll tell you, though, um, I know this is like a little bit, I'm going on a little bit about Oren, but um, his answer, I asked him, I said, hey, look, this is the title of the book. This is what I'm working on. You've seen all of this for the past 19 years. If you had to pick one thing, one thing that makes you inspiring inside of a room, what would it be? And I'm like, I'm, I'm bracing myself for this answer, right? Because it's gonna be really good. And he looks at me and he says, practice, <coughs> practice. And I'm like, that's the wor that's literally the, the worst answer I could ever, <laughs> could ever. But you didn't say that. I was no, I, but I was like, come on, man. I was like, practice, and, and, and I pushed really, really hard. But over the next hour, hour and a half, he laid out this case that was just unbelievable about the number of times that he has seen people who had the right content, who had the right pitch, who had the right idea, had, had felt like they understood things cold and then walked into a room feeling like, of course, I get this, I'm a natural at this because it's what I've been working on day in and day out, and then completely flub, completely flub the meeting. Um, and what he has told me is that if you, if you take the time to actually do, and there's a chapter in my book now because of this called Exhibition Matches, where before you actually go and do the real thing, you pick a few people and you run them through your presentation exactly the way that you're about to go get it 
Not, 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 not a, hey, let me give you an overview, and then I'm going to talk to them about this. Not, not a walkthrough, but exactly how you're planning on doing it, and you do that several times in a row, it's unbelievable what that will do for your game. And here's the thing. Very, very few people do it. I've literally surveyed now hundreds and hundreds of founders on this. Very, very few people, before they go into a pitch meeting, will do a real practice round. They'll, they'll, again, they'll walk friends through it, they'll look at their laptop, they'll flip through the sides themselves. Sometimes they'll even do like a, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do a verbal walkthrough to themselves. But to say, I want to walk you through this right now, exactly the same way I'm about to walk an investor through it, very, very few people do that. And yet, it is like one of those things that separates out really, really good pitchers from those who are not. So, anyway, practice. You actually have a great personal story about practice, which we can get to hopefully. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Many. Um, oh, well done then? <laughs> Sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> um, we, we only have a few more, and then we'll so you know start to think about questions you want to ask Sunil. Uh, he's only going to take the best three. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so make it good. Practice. Okay. Practice. Practice. <laughs> Write it down. Whisper it to the person next to you. Um, by the way, that showing up to work, even if you think you've been fired. Did anyone see that Seinfeld <laughs> where George just literally shows up? Anyway. <clears throat> okay, it was fantastic. Um, so one section that really resonated with me, people have heard of this concept when you're starting a company of financial runway, making sure you have enough financial runway. People are obsessed with, you know, when am I going to get to break even or get profit, whatever. You actually talk about the importance of something called emotional runway. Um, and, and I actually really, really agreed with that. Um, I think that's 100% right. Could you, could you explain to the group what that is and why you think that's so important? to have. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, quick story to kind of set it all up. Yeah, I was, um, when I was, when I was thinking about starting a company, I worked at two companies before that. I worked at Mozilla, the maker of Firefox, and I worked at Groupon. And in both, both, both were product development roles. And so, you know, think about it. I was working in, for a browser, internet browser, and I was working for an e-commerce company. And so, when I was thinking about what I, what I wanted to start, what kind of company I wanted to start, I had a spreadsheet of all these different ideas. Um, but unsurprisingly, these ideas were very e-commerce focused, and there was a couple of browser, internet browser type of ideas in there too. Um, and I sat down with a mentor of mine, and we went, you know, we went to dinner, and I actually brought this spreadsheet with me. I opened up my laptop, and I showed her. Her name is Julie Hanna. She was one of the co-founders of a company called Kiba, which is, does micro-lending, micro-loans. And I, and I walked her through the spreadsheet, one by one. I, I walked her through all the ideas. And it was, like, it was like nine ideas. And at the end of it, she looked at me and she said, you know, and what was, what was interesting is that I also had columns to the spreadsheet. I had things like market size and like competition. I had this very complex sort of like analysis. And after running her through my analysis, running through all these rows in my spreadsheet, she looks at me and she says, let me ask you a question. Which of these ideas actually make you come alive? And I'm like, well, I, you know, competition, I kind of went back to my analysis. She's like, no, 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 no. Which of these ideas actually make you, like, feel something, come, come alive? And I realized that the answer was none of them. None of them did. I could get excited about, like, the market potential. 
I could get excited about the idea that maybe, that maybe, uh, So I'm excited, like none of these ideas actually make me come alive. And it was one of those moments where I, I, I you know, again, like when we think about um, doing our diligence for companies, we, we think about sort of um, trying to figure out if an idea is any good. What I find that most people do, and I know that I did, um, was I look at the market. I look at all the variables of like, hey, would this do well? Would people invest in this? Would people buy the product? What would this look like years from now? But the thing that I think that we underappreciate, or I know I did, was like, is this idea actually something I really, really can fall in love with? Like, is it really something that like, I feel like I can do for, 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 for many years? Um, so back to Cyrus's question, you know, there's plenty of studies on this. We think about uh, why, why do startups fail? And oftentimes we think that the, the reason is because we run out of money, right? We run out of financial runway. And so the thing that as entrepreneurs we can tend to obsess with is like, do we have enough money in the bank? I know that, I've been there. I've, I've been very, very close to not being able to make payroll many times. Um, so that's obviously a stressful thing, but if you look at the data, more companies fail, not because of a lack of financial runway, but because the founders themselves burn out. Ultimately, the energy is no longer there. And so if you think about sort of the demands of running a company, starting a company and running a company, the demands for your energy are gonna to continue to go up and up and up, right? If your energy is continuing to go down and down and down, then eventually you're gonna run out of steam. So the thing to pay attention to early on is which way is your energy level trending? And you can get really excited about an idea, right? Really excited. And then you start to dig in and you start to understand some gaps. You have a few tough conversations. People say, what about that? And what about this? And you start to kind of realize that just like any idea, the best ideas, it's not bulletproof. It's got holes, it's got gaps. But the question, the thing to pay attention to during that time is what's happening to your energy level? Are you starting to feel really sapped? Are you starting to feel really kind of, huh? Because um, there's a difference between, between feeling like something is a problem to solve, which there are many problems to solve with anything that's worthwhile. Um, there's a difference between that and feeling that all of a sudden that your energy is really depleting as a result of those things. And so again, paying attention to the way your energy is trending. Is it trending up or is it trending down? Is very, very important in the early stages of an idea because you will need that emotional runway to really get you through the final journey. Love it. Okay, uh, one last one and then we'll, we'll open it up a bit. Um, all right, what was, this is a bit of a stumper, so sorry. Yeah. What was the most unexpected thing you found in this journey uh, of learning what it means to be back home? <laughs> I have to give you a hard one. Okay. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Oftentimes when, when you find something um, that uh, you believe like is, like it just seems sometimes obvious in retrospect, and then I kind of kick myself, I'm like, why didn't I know this all along? 
And, and that, that thing for me was really this idea that, um, and it, you know, it's a, it's a social science idea that's been given to us for decades, which is that as human beings, we have one brain, but we have two minds. We have an emotional side and we have a rational side. And the, the, the person that, that really sort of, I think, described this in the best way was a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he wrote a book called um, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis, which is just a great, just a great book. Um, and the way that he describes it is that we have an elephant and we have a rider, a rider that's riding on top of the elephant. The rider represents all of our, our, our rational logic, reasonableness, but the elephant represents emotion, represents our gut. And the way that we the way that we react to things, and as entrepreneurs, oftentimes what we tend to do is we tend to talk to the rider, and we ignore the elephant. So we have a new idea, and we think the way that we're going to convince people that a new idea should exist is through logic. We talk to the rider, but again, when when it comes to to taking a bet on something new, to taking a bet on something that is far from guaranteed. It's not the rider that's making that decision. It's the elephant that's making that decision. Right? If you look at the way that investors tend to make decisions, oftentimes they will invest based on gut and then they'll justify based on logic. Right? But if you were to say to them, hey, why did you decide to back that one company and not that one? Oftentimes there's not gonna be very clear reasoning because it is a gut-driven business. And the reason that's important is because I think I spent too many years in my career just trying to talk to people's riders and not and ignoring the elephant altogether. The rider's important. You've got to have logic to what you're doing as well. It's not unimportant. But th this book th that I've written is completely based on how to talk to an elephant. That's the thing that really, really uh, surprised me the most. Or find champion elephant riders. Or find champion elephant Thanks for listening to our fireside chat with Sunil Gupta and Cyrus Mystery. For more information, you can look up both of these gentlemen on LinkedIn. Sunil under S-U-N-E-E-L, last name Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. And Cyrus, you can look him up under C-Y-R-U-S, last name M-I-S-T-R-Y. So please connect with both of them on LinkedIn. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit, located in the heart of downtown Detroit. Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you'll be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bambooDetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on The Doers Network. Thanks for listening. To the Doers Podcast, where actives grow and thrive. The Doers Podcast is produced by Bamboo Detroit Network. For more information, visit us at bamboodetroit.com. <laughs>